You all were singing nice and loud this morning, and uh, I love to hear it. It was awesome. Thank you to our worship ministry uh, for that, for leading us. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to the book of Luke. We will be in chapter 13, uh, picking up where we left off last week in verse 10. It's a big passage this morning, and when I say it's big, I mean that it really stretches uh, across the span of the history of the earth, uh, from the Garden of Eden to a synagogue in Israel all the way to the end of time. Uh, That's the passage that we have in front of us this morning. And it's a text that shows us how God is fixing everything that has gone wrong in the world. And how the gospel is the answer for everything that is bent and and everything that is broken. And how Christ is the king who's at the center of it all. Uh, In terms of context, we're coming off of that really long sermon uh, from Jesus. It started in Luke 12 verse 1 and it ran all the way through last week. Uh, Luke 13 verse 9 and we finished that chunk of teaching and now we have Jesus in the synagogue teaching it's a new scene and uh, remember Jesus is on the road to the cross he has been on the road to the cross since Luke chapter 9 this is another step toward the cross as we finish up that uh, long discourse of teaching and we uh, meet him in the synagogue this morning so let me read Luke 13 starting in verse 10 Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his donkey, or uh, untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour, until it was all leavened. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Man cannot live on bread alone, but by every word of God. And as we break the bread of your word this morning, we pray you would bless it, that uh, it would nourish our hearts, and that it would lift, uh, Lord, um, our souls up and strengthen us, uh, Lord, or tear us down, if we have become puffed up with pride and we have become rebellious toward you, thinking that we know what's best for our own lives, that it would tear us down and remind us that we live under its authority. 
And so may it do the work that it needs to do, Lord, in, in the heart of each person that's here, Lord. You know what every person has walked in with this morning. You know what they're going through. Uh, you know what has stressed them out this week and what has caused them to rejoice this week, what has caused them to laugh, what has caused them to mourn, and everything in between. And so uh, each heart, Lord, you know the mercies that they need today, and I pray that you would provide it through your word. I pray that if there are uh, people here who do not know you this morning, God, that you would uh, use your word to woo their affections and to draw them in, Lord, to relationship uh, with you, um, to know you and love you and to walk with you, uh, to walk in the spirit, not in the flesh, as uh, Sylvia read earlier. Lord, bless this time that we sit with your Bible open, and um, I pray, Father, that you'll be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in verse 10, you see Jesus is teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Uh, synagogues were the regular place for Sabbath worship for a first century Jewish person, so nothing out of the ordinary here. Uh, it took 10 men to form a synagogue, which means it didn't take much, and in light of that, there were synagogues all over the place. There were 240 cities in the region of Galilee. Uh, every one of them probably had at least one synagogue, if not more, and um, in Jerusalem alone, there were probably 480 synagogues. So there are synagogues all over the place. And on the Sabbath, Jewish worshipers would come to the synagogue. And much like we have had uh, church here this morning, they would come in and there would be worship. And a man would stand up in the service and he would read an Old Testament passage and then he would explain the meaning of the passage. Uh, there was no full-time paid clergy down at the synagogue. Instead, each synagogue had a ruler, and the ruler was in charge of organizing who would read each week, who would teach each week. Jesus regularly taught in synagogues throughout his ministry. Uh, there's at least 10 different occasions in which he is teaching in a synagogue setting, uh, and this is the fourth instance that we have seen in the book of Luke alone, but this is also going to be the last. As we're going to see in this passage, he is less and less welcome in the synagogues. The establishment has had enough of him, and the closer that we get to the cross, the more hostile they are becoming toward him. We see that Jesus is teaching here in the synagogue. What is he teaching? Well, he's teaching the same thing that he had taught from the very beginning of his ministry. He was teaching the gospel of the kingdom, the message of the kingdom. He was teaching about the kingdom. And so if you go to Luke chapter 4, we saw him doing this. It says, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And Luke 8 Verse 1 says, Soon afterward he went on through the cities and the villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. In Luke 9, verse 11, When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Jesus had... Uh, some different sermons. We've seen them. We've seen the Sermon on the Plain in the book of Luke. We saw the sermon that he preached from Luke 12, verse 1, all the way through 13, 9. If you're familiar with um, the Gospel of Matthew, then maybe you have read in, in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. So he had different sermons, and he had different parables, and different lessons, and different applications. But 
in the center of all of it always was the message of the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom is referred to 31 different times in the book of Luke. Graham Goldsworthy has famously defined the kingdom of God like this, and this is important for us this morning, so uh, zero in on this definition. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule enjoying God's blessing. Okay, it's a great definition. It's pithy, it's easy to remember, and easy to understand. Uh, And I love it because so often people don't do well when they talk about the kingdom of God, and they're very confusing. Uh, For example, I remember at the first church I worked at, uh, the 40 Days of Purpose. Everybody remember the 40 Days of Purpose? Like every church in America, it seems like, did the 40 Days of Purpose in the early 2000s. They had done that, and they were looking for a new kind of 40 days uh, study. And so it was 40 Days in the Kingdom. It was called EKG. And uh, we got this book, and we read it. And after 40 days, one of my students and the youth group looked at me and said, we've been doing this for four weeks. And I still don't know anything about the kingdom of God. It was such a confusing study, uh, and it was the opposite of this definition from Graham Goldsworthy. This is wonderful for us. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing. This is what Jesus preached. Confess Christ as Lord Repent of sin. Bear fruit worthy of that repentance. Be delivered from sin. Be delivered from Satan. Be delivered from judgment. Take up your cross. Surrender your life. Follow the king of the kingdom. And we know that Jesus is teaching about the kingdom here because you can see how the passage finishes in verses 18 through 21. So we'll get to that in a moment. But for now, we focus on this incident that occurs in verses 11 through 17. Jesus is teaching and he is interrupted by the entrance of a woman into the synagogue. She's been doubled over for 18 years by what Luke calls a disabling spirit. When Luke says, behold, okay, in verse 11, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit, that behold lets us know she's interrupting the service. She wasn't there, she is walking in and interrupting the service. Probably not a quick entrance. Probably wasn't a pretty entrance. Moving around with her condition was likely a massive challenge. And so she's this woman, an outsider walking in, literally and figuratively. And when people saw her shuffling around, here's what they would have assumed. They would have looked at her and gone, she must have sinned. And if she didn't sin, then somebody that's close to her sinned, or maybe her parents sinned. You remember last week we talked about how first century Jews believed that when suffering came on a person, it was always because of sin in their life. But in reality, that's not always the case, right? Jesus corrected that teaching last week. Is it because these people were more sinful that uh, Pilate slaughtered them, and, and the blood of these Galileans got mixed in with the sacrifices? And Jesus said, of course, no. And unless you repent, this will happen to you as well. Uh, In John 9, he clarified that the man in that text was born blind so that God could be glorified. It wasn't because he sinned or his parents sinned. And so Jesus stops his sermon, and he calls her over, and with a word from his mouth, he tells her that she is freed from her disability, and then with a touch of his hand, 
she is healed and she's made straight and she gives glory to God. We don't know if she was converted here, right? We don't have any clue to that, but she glorifies God in the moment and we can assume that with her straightening, she's not just physically healed, but she is spiritually delivered and that this disabling spirit flees from her body with the authority of the word of Christ and the touch of Christ. Now, you would think that in this moment, I mean, listen, if this happens this morning, like if one of you had a disabling spirit and we like commanded that spirit to go and put a hand on you, all right, everybody's talking about that for years, right? That sticks out in your mind. And in the moment, you are probably a little taken aback, and then you're going, man, God is amazing, right? Everybody's going to be giving glory to God. You would think that here, everybody would be joining in with her in the celebration. This is a miraculous moment. This is not your normal Saturday down at the synagogue. But the ruler of the synagogue, the man who was in charge of it, the man who would have been responsible for operating the place of worship and designing the service and picking who was going to read and picking the passage that was going to be read, he is not happy. Luke says the man is indignant because of the fact that this has been done on the Sabbath. The Greek word for indignant means to be moved in the bowels with displeasure. And so like in his gut, he is feeling some wrath toward Jesus. It makes you wonder, like, why did you let Jesus talk there in the first place? You're setting up the service. You obviously got a problem this man. Maybe it was because the people loved Jesus so much, he felt the pressure and he gave into it. I don't know. But he is angry. He is furious. Now, this is not Jesus' first run-in with the religious authority in the book of Luke. He is tangled with the scribes and the Pharisees who are the overseers of synagogue Judaism, and it's been a recurring event. You remember in Luke 5, they're so disgusted that he would eat at a sinner's house, a sinner like Matthew, and eat with Matthew's friends, and they passive-aggressively, they don't even talk to Jesus about it, they kind of go around him and talk to his disciples And they grumble at the disciples, and in Luke 5.30, they say, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? In Luke 6, they tangle over the Sabbath. Uh, Starting in verse 1, On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, uh, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? In Luke 7, more anger over Jesus' association with sinners. Now when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. In Luke 11, they blasphemously accuse Jesus of a partnership with Satan. He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, they said. And then at a lunch party at a Pharisee's house, Jesus pronounces six woes on the Pharisees, tells them that they're like dishes that are clean on the outside and they're filthy on the inside. He chastises them for tithing from the spice rack but neglecting um, love and justice, for contaminating people with their teaching, for having an exterior religion that's all about keeping up appearances. And if you remember that scene, he's like ripped into the uh, Pharisees and then one of the lawyers is like, Jesus, you offended. 
tempts with this. And he's like, okay, you want some too. Woe to the lawyers. And then he rips into them for their man-made rules and for the fact that if they could, they would join in with the killing of the prophets that their forefathers um, committed. And for the fact that they are the lawyers who are supposed to make the law plain, but instead they hide knowledge from people. And then in Luke 12, he tells his disciples, beware of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. This is how he started that long sermon that we just wrapped up. The first thing he says in that message is, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. That's just what we've seen in the first half of Luke. In the other gospel accounts, you see even more. They call Jesus a blasphemer. They call him a liar. They call him a sinner. They accuse him of being possessed by a demon. They challenge his authority. And of course, they are plotting kill him. So the indignance of the ruler of the synagogue shouldn't come as a surprise to us. And he stands up and audaciously says, if you want to get healed, there's six other days of the week. But you don't do it on the Sabbath. You don't come in here on the Sabbath trying to get healed. And so Jesus calls him, and anyone who would agree with him in verse 15, a hypocrite. Why? Well, for two reasons. First of all, no work had really been done here. The man's indignation is nonsensical. Like, Jesus has this woman walk forward. He spoke to her, and he touched her, and that's the only things that have occurred here. Even the -the over-the-top man-made Sabbath regulations of the Pharisees, which kept you from squeezing fruit on the Sabbath and braiding hair on the Sabbath, did not forbid walking and speaking and touching. Secondly, the Mishnah, which was the book of rabbinic laws, allowed animals to be taken to food and water on the Sabbath. The man-made book of laws they had come up with said that it was fine to go and, and, and feed and water your cattle on the Sabbath. So Jesus is calling this man a hypocrite because when you get down to the core of his argument, what is he saying? He's saying it's okay to take care of a donkey and it's okay to take care of an ox, but you can't take care of a human being on the Sabbath. Like, what kind of value system is that? How could that be from God? This is a Jewish woman. This is a daughter of Abraham. And Jesus is saying to them, surely this woman is more important than a donkey, more important than an ox. But by your practice of theology, O ruler of the synagogue, she's not. And furthermore, he says that the Sabbath, it's the perfect day for healing. Right? I mean, the Sabbath was supposed to be a day of rest. All week long, they had to keep the law. And the Sabbath was a day in which they were able to rest from the law. This woman who had been worked over by this spirit and worked over by this condition for 18 years, now she has rest from it. Why should she wait one more day? The day of rest is a beautiful day for her body to finally find peace and rest and solace after all of this time. So Jesus' argument is sound. So sound that the man and anyone who agreed with him in verse 17 are put to shame. 
And so the enemies are shamed, and look, it says that all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. So the ruler of the synagogue and those of his ilk put to shame the worshipers of God are rejoicing and glorifying God. This is a good scene. It's a good scene when the cynical enemies of Jesus are put to shame and the worshipers are giving glory to God. This is a good scene. And so the scene comes to a close, and then Jesus goes right back to teaching. I love it. He's like, all right, back to the sermon. What is the kingdom of God like? He launches these two parables. This is the last thing you will see Jesus do in a synagogue in the book of Luke. These are the last words that Jesus will speak in a synagogue in the book of Luke. So he heals this woman, he verbally suplexes the synagogue ruler, and he gets right back to the message. By the way, this is just a reminder to us that the signs and the miracles that Jesus performed always were breadcrumbs meant to lead us back to the feast of the gospel of the kingdom. And so here are the parables. In the first one, Jesus says the kingdom is like a grain of a mustard seed. Now the mustard seed is not the smallest seed that existed uh, in that region, but it is the smallest seed they would have been familiar with and that they would have dealt with on a regular basis. It would have been the smallest seed that they actually put in the ground on their farms. And yet, despite how small it is, the seed grows into this great tree and becomes a resting place for birds. In the second parable, he compares God's kingdom to leaven. In verse 21, leaven was a fermented substance that was mixed into the bread dough and it would cause the dough to swell and to expand. It would rise and become something a lot better than it was without the leaven. So in the first parable with the mustard seed, Jesus is teaching us about how the kingdom grows externally. Like the kingdom is going to grow and grow and grow. It will expand. It will get bigger. It will become a force. In its beginnings, it seems small. It seems obscure, ignored by most. But in the end, it's going to be massive. It's going to be sturdy. It's going to be unmistakable. In the second parable, Jesus is teaching us about how the kingdom will transform the world. The leaven was hidden out of sight, but it transformed the dough from the inside out. And so the kingdom will change and transform the world. Now what I wrestled with is what is the connection between Jesus' teaching and this woman's healing? Right? Jesus is teaching, the woman comes in, she's healed, he goes right back to his teaching. Surely the teaching and the event that is sandwiched in between it are joined together. And so this is where we need to step back. And I said at the beginning, this is a big passage. This is a passage that spans all of, of, of human history. This is where we need to step back. We've been kind of flying down low here. Uh, we, we need to get back to 30,000 feet, fly up high and look at this thing from up top and see the big picture. So track with me. Let, let's go back to that definition that's so helpful about the kingdom. Gold's, uh, Goldsworthy's definition of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule enjoying God's blessing. Goldsworthy called this the pattern of the kingdom. 
Well, where do we first see the pattern of the kingdom in the scriptures? We see it in the garden. God's people are Adam and Eve. They are in God's place, the garden. They are living perfectly under God's rule. And they are enjoying the blessings of their community with one another. And this is the way that things are meant to be. Genesis 1, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is God's design. This is the pattern of His kingdom. That He makes His people in His image and that they live in His place and they live under His rule and they enjoy His blessings. The blessings of their community with one another, the blessings of all the trees that He told them they could eat from, minus the one tree, the knowledge of good and evil, the blessing um, of a relationship with Him where they know Him and love Him and then reflect Him in the world that He created. But what happened in the garden? Well, the enemy slithered in with his lies. Lies about God. Lies about God's Word. Lies about God's character. And Adam and Eve, of course, eat from the tree that God told them not to eat from. And sin enters into the world and it brings with it the wages of sin, which is death. And what happens to God's people as a result of sin? They are ousted from God's place because they have rebelled against His rule. And now, instead of enjoying His blessing, they are separated from Him. And as soon as God's people are outside of God's place, they start killing each other. Cain murders his brother. This is not the pattern of the kingdom. The pattern of the kingdom has been disrupted. Now, in the Old Testament, as you read through it, we don't have time to go, uh, go, go through the narrative in full this morning, but as you read through it, the pattern of the kingdom is reestablished in part, but not fully. And the Old Testament prophets look forward to this time when the kingdom will be fully reestablished through a Messiah king who would come and fully establish the kingdom. And so you see this throughout the Old Testament text. Psalm 2, verses 7 and 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In Psalm 72, verse 2, May He judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. And then in verse 7, In His days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. So what's the expectation of the psalmist? That a king will sit on a throne and rule the nations and bring peace for the people of God. God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessings through the rule of the Messiah. In Micah chapter 4, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, 
to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords in the plowshares and their spears in the pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For the peoples walk in each, uh, uh, walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. God's people living in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessings. Micah 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And then Zechariah gets in on it, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and they shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. The scriptures and the prophets said the king would come. And he would rule, and the people would live under his rule, and they would enjoy the blessings of God. In other words, he would restore the kingdom and the pattern of the kingdom. Now, people got confused because when Jesus came, he did not come trying to overthrow the Romans. He didn't come trying to uh, overthrow the foreign power, seeking to reestablish David's physical throne. And that was confusing to his disciples. He taught, he healed, he cast out demons, he called fishermen to be in his inner circle, but he did not reestablish the physical throne of David. It was confusing to his disciples, it was infuriating to the religious elite that he was being called the Messiah, but he was not dealing with Rome. But here's what they didn't understand. The pattern of the kingdom was interrupted because of sin. Because of rebellion. And that had to be dealt with. If, if God's people were going to live under God's rule and enjoy God's blessings, they had to be reconciled to God. Their sins had to be paid for in full. And the only one who could do that work was the very Messiah King that the Scriptures foretold. Because He would not just come and reestablish God's rule, but He would come and He would be slain for the sins of His people. Like a sheep before its shearers, his mouth would be silent. And it pleased the Lord to crush him. Because justice had to be done for sin. And so Jesus came and Jesus died in your place and in my place so we could be called the people of God again. And then he resurrected and he ascended to heaven. And one day he will return. And when he does... His kingdom will be consummated. We've reached back to Genesis 1. Let's reach forward to Revelation 21 to see what Christ's rule will look like. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Doesn't that sound like the kingdom? He will dwell with them. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Doesn't that sound like peace, right? And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. It's the garden restored. God's people in God's place under God's rule enjoying God's blessing as God intended it to be. So we go back to the synagogue. We go back to Jesus teaching and the woman interrupting and Jesus going back to the parables about the kingdom. This woman is a result, a picture of the result of what happens when the pattern of the kingdom of God is broken. Her life is literally doubled over by the forces of Satan and the sickness that they brought. The old enemy who whispered lies to Eve in Eden is back to the life of one of Eve's daughters. And with a word and a touch, Jesus the King shows He's reversing the curse. Shows He's undoing the deformity that sin and death has brought into the world. The King is using His authority to give us a preview of the restoration He will bring at the end of history. What is bent will be straightened. What is disabled will be made able. Where there is discord, there will be peace. God's people will live under God's rule and will enjoy God's blessings and His peace once again. But this was just a preview. In this moment, the kingdom is a mustard seed that is about to expand. It's leaven that's about to transform the world from the inside out. And indeed it did. I'm not going to call these parables prophecies, but they are prophetic in a sense. Because within four decades of Jesus speaking these words, the kingdom would grow and expand and it would touch every part of the Roman Empire. Within four centuries, it would be the official religion of the empire for better or for worse. And it would grow and expand over the next 2,000 years, changing the face of human history. Like the leaven, the kingdom of God is expanding and transforming the world from the inside out. The world may not see it, not even realize it, but the testimony of the citizens of the kingdom are transforming the nations. And you're a part of that. Your life is a preview of the kingdom that will be consummated one day. The way that he has come into your life, into your heart, if you are a believer this morning, and He has taken what was bent and He has straightened it out, it's a preview of the kingdom. It's a preview of Revelation 21, 2-5. But it's just a preview. The world's still broken. The world's still fallen. But until Jesus fixes it fully and finally, 
We, as the church, put the pattern of the kingdom on display. We tell the world about the good news of the king of the kingdom. We show them the way of the kingdom. We are God's people, living under God's rule, enjoying God's blessings. And so that's the gospel that we preach. Man, the world is bent up. The world is disabled by the evil of sin. They think there's freedom in the sin that they chase. But in reality, there's bondage there. I want to talk about this issue for a second because it just comes to my mind as one of the most glaring examples of the, of, of, of the brokenness of the world and the way the world is bent up and how basic things they have not been able to get right as they have sought freedom. But in their seeking, they've run further into brokenness. And I don't bring this up because um, I want to single out this one issue. But it is a poignant case study to show us that the world cannot deliver on the promises it offers. Gender reassignment surgery has become normalized by our society in the last decade. To the point that if your child wants to pursue that and you don't support it, it's being looked at as child abuse by our own government. The lie we are sold in this particular issue is there's freedom in this. Because you go and you become the person that you are meant to be. Who you truly feel you are. But here's the dark reality of the situation. is that people who get the surgery are 20 times more likely to commit suicide 10 to 15 years after the procedure. That is a devastating statistic. There's supposed to be freedom in it. But they find out there's not. And again, I don't say that to attack transgender people or single out that one issue, but we look at a world that can't even get something that basic correct and has run down that path seeking freedom and has found nothing but more brokenness. We come to that world and we say, here's the king. His name is Jesus. All the things that, that you have heard will give you freedom will not actually give you freedom, will not actually give you peace. The fruit from that tree will not make your heart whole. Surrender your life to this Jesus. Live your life under His rule. This is how you were always meant to live. This is where true freedom is actually found. And when you come to Him, your life still might be really hard. No guarantees of comfort. In fact, just the opposite. The world may hate you. You're going to suffer at times because God is disciplining you. You're going to suffer at times because God is, is refining you. But even when the circumstances of your life rage in the King, there's peace and there's blessing. And that's the good news that this world needs. Do you know what disturbs me? Because, let's be honest, I brought up that transgender issue and some, some of our politically conservative folks are like, yep, yeah, get it, Pastor. You know what disturbs me is that so many of my conservative brothers and sisters, when they hear about the transgender issue, their answer is, well, if you would just be a conservative. No. True freedom's not found in some political party or some political ideology you marry yourself to. That stuff's going to leave as empty in the end as a gender reassignment surgery. 
The only place you're going to find the peace and the wholeness that God designed you for is in the king of the kingdom. And that's the only place that your friends and your family are going to find it in as well. So if you are preaching any gospel to them, whereas the gospel of Joe Biden, Donald Trump, or anybody in between, it's not going to work. They'll probably just end up frustrated and angry. The good news people need is the kingdom that Jesus is preaching in this text. Who is closer to knowing the blessings of the king because you're telling them? Because you're showing them. What do we say about ourselves here, right? We are the workmanship of Christ. We are his workmanship. We have signs out here in the parking lot when you leave. You're entering your mission field. Go and be his workmanship. We are the workmanship of Christ, putting the glory of the king on display everywhere we go. And so who is closer to the king because you're showing them the kingdom? Are you all in on this? Because this is how the kingdom expands. And one day, the sky is going to crack open and Jesus is going to come back. And on that day, all things will be made right. But those who don't know the king will be outside the kingdom. So we have got to tell them now, as ambassadors of the kingdom, so they don't miss out on the blessings of the king forever. This is an amazing passage of Scripture, isn't it? It's amazing, the depths of it. I mean, again, it reaches all the way back to creation and all the way forward to consummation. But here we are in the middle, at this moment in history, representing the king who brings peace with a word and a touch. What a privilege that is, and what a comfort it is to be citizens of the kingdom and to preach this message with Jesus as our model. Let's do it. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. I, I am so burdened this morning, Lord, that we would not spend our time trying to convince people of ideologies and ideas that are worldly. I see politics as a major idol in the church today, Lord. I, I see so many Christians that are, are consumed by it. It's, it's hard not to be. I get it. It's on our news stations all the time. It's in our emails. It's in our text messages. It's all around us. We are being drowned in information. And it's hard not to want to take up arms against those that don't think like us see them as enemies and go to war all in the name of earthly kingdoms but we're being shown something this morning that is so big and so epic in your word and that we have a part in as christians that we can't settle for spending our days and our hours and our minutes lord getting consumed by the stuff of the world. There's a spiritual battle going on for souls. Eternity is at stake, uh, at, at stake, and your kingdom is the most important thing. Not only that we would live under your rule as your people, 
enjoying your blessings, or that we would show that to others, and that we would invite them in, because this is the only place they're going to find what they're looking for. This is the only place they're going to find the peace they need. So I pray here, pray that we, we would leave here today not only fired up about wanting to live under the rule of the king and enjoy his blessings ourselves, but that we would leave here fired up about taking the message of the kingdom to the world, knowing that at this moment in history, we're involved. We are, we are in this epic narrative. We're a part of it. We're a part of seeing the, the mustard seed grow into this giant, sturdy tree. We are part of seeing the leaven transform the entire uh, lump of dough. We get to preach the message of the kingdom. We get to tell people what God has made him for, and how to get back to him, and what you have done to provide a way. Don't let us take it for granted, Lord. Don't let us lose sight of it. I pray that it would consume us. It's the only thing that's worth it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ and you want to know him, you want to know more about him, you want to know more about the kingdom we've talked about this morning, uh, you can contact us at connectseafordbaptist.com. Uh, you can email us there or text us there because you can text an email, uh, an email address. So, so just get in touch with us and let us know you want to know more and we will get back in touch with you. But also, just you know, Pastor uh, David and, and myself and Pastor Ben, we're going to be here this morning after the service. We'd love to speak with you. Um, about the gospel and any questions that you have. And, uh, and, and our church members are well equipped to share the gospel as well. If you're sitting near somebody, you can always ask them. Um, but don't wait. Uh, today is the day of salvation. And if you're looking for an action point as a member of our church, and you're going, so what do I do? I, I am fired up about the, king, the kingdom. This is what I want to preach. This is what I want to spend my hours and my days and my minutes on. Um, a good way to start would be to take these little blue invitations with you today as you leave, uh, because on them it says, join me at Seaford Baptist. It's got our info on the back, and you can hand those out to people and invite them to come to our church where we are displaying the kingdom by, uh, by the, the mercy and the grace of God. So um, wherever you're at, believer, unbeliever, respond to the Lord this morning. Uh, do not ignore uh, the stirring that he is doing in your heart. Let's stand together and sing.